Our guest today is one of the most revered voices in music. Paul Carrick is dubbed the man with the golden voice, and he wrote and sang How Long, the much-covered 1974 classic from his days with Ace, and was the voice of Tempted from his tenure with Squeeze. Then came such hits with Mike and the Mechanics, Silent Running, and the Grammy-nominated The Living Years and Over My Shoulder. But how many of you actually know the Eagles hit song, Love Will Keep Us Alive, was co-written by Paul and won the ASCAP Award for Song of the Year in 1995. And he is also an in-demand collaborator. Paul's decades of distinction include sessions with the Smiths, Elton John, Roxy Music, B.B. King, and countless others, accumulating an invitation from Eric Clapton to join his touring band. So without further ado, let's welcome one of the most soulful voices in music history today, the man, the voice, the incomparable Paul Carrick. Welcome to the show. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, you are, so, you are so welcome, but I'm, I'm interested. What sparked your interest in music growing up in Sheffield? Oh, I, I think I, I was just fascinated by any kind of music all kinds of music you know um i think my my father's uh, family were quite musical although we didn't have a, an awful lot of contact with them but um my dad encouraged the love of music um, and i was interested in it wherever i could get it i mean it wasn't like wall-to-wall -wall, um, pop music like we have nowadays obviously but anything on the tv or something whatever it might be whether it be um, a classical or, or a pop or jazz or whatever. I love singing at school, hymns, things like that. Um, so yeah, just a fascination. And on the pop music side of things, I have an older brother, four years older, and uh, he started getting into rock and roll and, um, you know, the Everly brothers and uh, things like that. The, the instrumental guitar groups, the ventures, things like that. And then, of course, when the in my early, very early teens or just before that, when the Beatles and the whole um, the whole uh, Mersey beat sound and uh, that really lit, lit me up, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was the first musical instrument you learned to play? I'm still learning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, we, we didn't have much in the way of it. We lived in one room at the back of a store, a small store, which my mom ran the store. My dad, she sold wallpaper and paint. My dad was a painter and decorator. You know, you paint people's houses and stuff. We didn't have a lot of room, but we did have an attic up in the top where um, there were some bits of old drum kits. I can't call it a drum kit. There's a little bass drum. There's a snare drum. I think my dad used to dabble a little bit back in the day. So I would, I would go up there and, and, and play on the, on the drums to records, you know, but I, I was actually probably more interested in soccer than anything. When I was a kid, I would, was outdoors all the time, all kinds of weather. Um, but I did like music. And especially, as I say, when I got in, when the beat thing happens with the, with the beat groups, um, and we had a little band at school and we played the school concert and the girls screamed and that was it. I was done. That's me. I'll have that. You know, that's funny because I've heard other recording artists tell me the exact same thing. When they, when they <laughs> first had that real stage experience for the first time, 
and saw the crowd or or the girls go wild. They knew right then and there that's what they wanted to do <laughs> for a living. So was was that for you? Was it the same for you? Into where you like? I want to do that. This is how I'm going to make my living. I want to play music. It was it was quite early on because I didn't enjoy school. I, I wasn't very academic at all. Um. No, in fact, I hated it. But um. So I didn't really have an all a whole lot of options in actual fact. Um, my father had passed because he had an accident at work and I was when I was 11. My brother kind of took over the store and they were holding the thing together. As long as I went to school every day, they didn't pay too much attention. But I knew I didn't have a career in anything else. Now, I grew up in Sheffield in the north of England which is a very, at the time, in the 60s, industrial uh, city, uh, steel city, engineering, coal mines, and work was almost like a religion, you know, it, and, and, and this staying at home and lying in bed in the morning and not going out to work was not considered uh, a respectable way to carry on. But I'd already made my mind up. I just wanted to be in a band and be on the road. Wow. Well, you mentioned early on that uh, you liked singing hymns. Um, were you a church-going boy back then? Um, not really. I mean, but but we did have assembly most mornings when we would, you know, have hymns and prayers and readings. Um, I was in the Cubs, and we were supposed to go to church once a month. But... The church that we were affiliated with was this old, cold, huge um, thing. Got kind of gothic, I suppose it was. It was an it was an old school church, and it was cold. And there was a thundering great organ that you know would reverberate. And I think I had some sort of vertigo thing because I hated being in tall buildings. And I was scared in this building. So I, if I could get out of going, I didn't. I didn't go. No. Oh. Much to my dad's disappointment, because he was disappointed about that. He would have liked me to have gone. Well, you know, and, and that's what parent. That's what parents do. But uh, you know, even when I was young, I mean, I didn't want to go either. So uh, mm. for different reasons. But I think it's a kid thing. But let's step yeah. up to 1974 because you wrote you. how long. And while being the lead singer of Ace, are you surprised how that song has endured over the years? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I mean, we were surprised that when it became a hit in the first place. I mean, we were optimistic. We, we were actually really just a bar band, you know, playing for having fun. We, we, we managed to get ourselves a, a contract with a very small label, made the record for nothing, you know. Um it was already in our set. We played it in our set and um, it became a, a slowly became a hit in the UK. And then to watch it actually go up the charts in the US was unreal, to be honest. We had no idea. We'd never been to America or anything like that. Um, so that was all totally surprising and mind-boggling but the fact as you say that it's still around now still gets played 
on the radio is unbelievable. Well, you have recorded... Well, I went back and listened to your extremely large music catalog, and I think there's at least three, if not four, uh, versions of how long that you recorded. There's one that has that big band feel. There's one with uh, an orchestra. Uh, What made you want to cut different versions? Um, I don't know, um, because the... The original's, you know, probably the best. Um, it, it, it is a real record. You know, we were very naive. We didn't really know what we're doing in the studio. We weren't studio um, f- friendly. We didn't know much about it, but um, we, we captured a moment. And um, it, it definitely has a vibe, that record. Of course, you know, it was one of those uh, t- terrible 70s stories you know, we we didn't make much money out of it or anything <laughs> like that, so we won't go there. But um, I know, probably the first version I did. I, I always did it in on my gigs, you know, with whoever, whichever band I was in. And um, I think some point during the mid nineties, when I had a solo record contract with a small label, and they were quite keen for me to do another version of it. But I didn't. I didn't try and copy the original. I just. It was. It's quite different that version. Yeah, and and I've listened to all of the versions that you have done, and they all sound great. So, what was the actual inspiration behind writing that song? Is there a story there? Yeah, there's definitely a story. Uh, it's fairly well documented, but maybe not in, so much in the states, um, because when we were uh, starting out with Ace, as I said, we were playing for fun. It was. Uh, bread and butter stuff we're just playing in bars for fun some friends of ours were doing rather better with their band they had a record contract they had the support tours and things like that and um i I forget the particular reason but their bass player i think he might have been ill and um they needed someone to dep for him for a a few gigs and they borrowed our bass player (laughs) i can see you're wondering where's this going um so they borrowed our bass player and to our disappointment let's say they were very they were kind of keen to give him the job permanently but uh, and uh, so i was very disappointed about that <laughs> ah so uh, is that is that where the line how long has this been going on come from yeah <laughs> yeah the friends with their fancy persuasions and all that so uh, yeah but um thank thank goodness they did try and pinch our bass player that's all i can say yeah because that song is extremely timeless now i know that you played keyboards and supplied the backing vocals with roxy music from 78 to 81 Uh, it seemed like a very different departure for you going from ace and then as roxy music was kind of a cross between glam rock and punk i mean were you looking for a different music scene or new inspiration it just happened. I mean, um, I wasn't particularly a fan of Roxy because they were the antithesis of what Ace were about. Ace were some were scruffy, plaid shirt wearing, denim trousers, anti glam, anti show business. And Roxy were, of course, were were the other extreme. They were very much, you know, into glam rock and all the rest of it in the beginning. So it was a bit funny that I ended up playing with them, but. What it was, I knew 
quite a when Ace had, had, had split and I was floundering around wondering what to do next. I started to play on sessions in uh, around London. I wasn't very accomplished, by the way, so I always was a little bit insecure about doing these sessions. But I, I fell in with this crowd of guys who uh, were my peers, who I thought that's you know that's how you get to be better as you play with these guys and um they had been playing on a brian ferry solar record roxy were about to go get back together and go on tour but um they were going to use these session guys on the stage and um they said to me well we know a guy he's he's not he, you know he can probably do this so um that's how i got involved with them and i went on tour with them and i loved it it was great it was fun you know it was uh not taking itself too seriously and uh brian and everybody were were great i i loved it well then you know 1980 when it rolled around i mean the the music seemed to take on a different flavor than what we had in the 1970s then we had the beginnings of mtv the british music invasion into the united states uh a much almost one a much bigger one than what we had with the beatles and the stones but then how would you describe the 1980s when it came to music for you? Um, not great. Uh, I didn't like the emphasis on uh, videos because I didn't really look the part. I'd never, I'd never looked the part, you know. Uh, in fact, I look more the part now when I'm 70 than, uh, than I did back then. But um, so the beginning of the 70s, um, uh, sorry, the beginning of the eighties. Oh, yeah, it wasn't all doom and gloom. I mean, I I was had a stint with Squeeze. Actually, prior to that, I made a solo record that had one top thirty hit on it. It was called "I Need You." And right on um, the the, the um, it was on Epic. It's Bourbon yeah. Voodoo. Yeah, yeah. The, the title of that album. Yeah. So, yeah, the time with Squeeze was that was exciting because I loved them. I thought that they, they had great songs, great energy. Um, but I had joined when their keyboard player had left. I didn't even realize I was joining the band, to be honest with you. I'd made an album with them called East Side Story. And um, the next thing I knew it was, well, we better go on, you know, we're going on tour. And so I had sung some lead vocals on the song tempted as well from that album so i think you know it yeah, was a bit you, yeah because you replaced you replaced jules holland who left yeah. the band that's right and when the album was uh, being produced it was produced by elvis costello correct correct that's and right. why did he suggest that you sing the lead on tempted well for whatever reason it was i'm glad he did because i i think it's one of the best songs they've ever written and I think it's a great, great song. Um, they, I, I had joined literally a week or two before they started to record the album. In fact, as I said, I didn't even know I was joining the band. I thought I was just playing keyboards. So one day we'd more or less finished the album. And then um, one day we're kicking the song around, Tempted, which they had already recorded a completely different version. And then we started messing around, you know, with the organ and and everything. And um, that's when Elvis came running in and said, uh, wait, 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 let's put this down, you know. 
And so we put down a track, you know, backing track. And then he said, oh, this is great. But you know what, Paul, you should sing it. And uh, I wasn't going to argue with him. <laughs> but um, so I, I sang, you know, most of the lead vocals on it. There's, Glenn also sings on it. Elvis sings on it. And uh, it became a little bit of a breakthrough hit for them in the States, which was, you know, a bit of a double-edged sword. a little bit un I'm the new guy and I'm singing that song. They've already got two great singers. They don't need really need any another singer and they don't really need a songwriter, especially not the kind of songs I wrote at that time, which was sort of, you know, lovey dovey. They're, they're more sort of new wave with edge and fantastic lyrics, Christopher. So it's a bit of a funny, funny time. It's, as I said, I was a massive fan, though. I, I, I think they're incredibly talented. Well, what was it like actually filming a music video? I used to hate doing the videos. As I said, I, I didn't feel I looked the part. I, but, um, yeah, we, we, we weren't keen on that at all. But um, it was a necessary thing to do. Well, you know, you, you being British... And yeah. being heavily into the British music scene, kind of explain to all of us why being across the pond that America, in a way, and th and I've heard this from Canadians as well, getting a hit on the American music chart is like the holy grail. Why is that? Well, it's the home of rock and roll for a start, and it's a massive country. I mean, you know, it's so to be amongst that. Uh, for us coming to America with, you know, with Ace, when we first came in 1975 to tour, it was just like going to the moon, really, because it was, you know, we were in, Britain was in a very austere place at the time. There were strikes, there were power outages, there was terror. And we came to America and we, I think we landed in Miami and, you know, we had hotels and as many towels as you wanted and a pina colada, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It was just, that's fantastic. Because, I mean, from leaving school and up until that time, I'd always been broke. I mean, completely broke. But uh, we were living the dream, I suppose. Yeah, and um, it, it gets addictive, doesn't it? Indeed. Yeah. Not that we became rich overnight, but at least we were amongst it, you know, and um, our first tour we supported Yes, who were very established touring band at that time, playing arenas every night. And we were this, you know, rope, ropey old uh, British pub band in our T-shirts and jeans with no lighting and what have you. Uh, so it was, it was a bit tough, but we got away with it just about with the skin of our teeth because that was a big record on the radio. How yes, long, it, was, it was also a very big video on MTV. Yeah. Yeah, very popular. Well, it, you know, right like you- But I was talking, I'm, I'm sorry, I was talking, I was no, talking about how long mostly. <laughs> oh. You're talking about Tempted. Yeah, Tempted. Well, yeah. And uh, well, you know, it's, it's funny because you're known for very particular songs. But I want to kind of step into your solo records because we had just mentioned your second solo studio album was Suburban Voodoo, which was actually among Rolling Stone's top 20 albums of the year. 
When yeah. that happened, did you think that you had it made as a solo artist? Well, I thought I had a shot, you know. Um, that that I mean, that album it was uh, produced by Nick Lowe, who was one of the reasons really that that I'd left Squeeze. Um, other than the fact, as I say, they didn't need another singer, they didn't need another songwriter. So although I was in having fun being along for the ride, I knew at some point I had to, you know, give my you know, challenge myself a little bit. Anyway, so I, I got him. I wanted to be involved with Nick as well. I thought I was a big fan of Nick Lowe. So he produced that album for me. We had a little bit of a, a tickle with it and the, the single. Um, but it's still, you know, that's just a foot in the door, you know, in a, in a massive country like America, you probably need a bit more than that. Well, and you know, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, no. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your next album, the, the next solo album after that was One Good Reason, which oh, yeah. I'm going to be completely honest with you, Paul, is literally one of my favorite albums of all time. No. Seriously, every song still sounds brand new today. Now, the big hit was Don't Shed a Tear, which was the big hit yes. for you. But as I was researching the songs on the album, because I, I love listening to it, my favorite song on there is When You Walk Into the Room. And of okay. course, I love Button Off My Shirt. But yeah. when you walk into the room, or walk, when you walk in the room, it, it has twice as many plays on Spotify. Which, was that song ever released to radio? Um, not in the US, I don't think. No. In fact, maybe not even in the UK. But funnily enough, Don't Shed a Tear wasn't a hit in the UK. <laughs> no. That's I mean, strange it was because we, I, it, cause it I was, compared them because on Spotify, it was at 5.5 million listens. And when you walk into the room, is at 11 million. So I was like... It? Was it on the radio? Because, but the song is fantastic. I actually dedicate it to my wife all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's a great song. I mean, it's the, Jackie the Shannon um, wrote the song. I, I was familiar with it from uh, the Searchers. I don't know the Searchers. You know the Searchers in the, a Liverpool band come up at the time of the Beatles. No, I don't they think had, so. Well, they had a lot of hits in the UK, mostly covers of American songs. Things like needles and pins, um, walk in the room was 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 huge. Um, but that album, funnily enough, I, I won't. It's not my favorite for for different reasons. But um, I had been out of the picture since the Suburban Voodoo album. I'd been waft, wading around, playing with Nick, doing endless bus tours, supporting people. Um, but I basically got that, uh, contract to make an, a solo album on the strength of the Mike and the Mechanics first album. It was because that was, you know, very well received things like silent running, big radio thing. And, uh, somebody said, <clears throat> thought, well, we'll have another punt with Paul Carrick, <laughs> but, um, and they they employed the same producer record producer chris neal very good successful pop producer um 
And but that record to me is very of its time. It's very eighties. I I suspect you're a bit of a fan of the eighties. Well, I'm a big fan of the mid to late seventies. Mm. But I've been listening to more and more eighties uh, because of so many people that I talk to, and. Of course, with you know the the big year that Duran Duran had this year, you know more and more people are listening to going back listening to the '80s songs, <clears throat> and I think they're fantastic. But like I said, that album there's just something about one good reason. I don't know what yeah. it is, but if, if I if I ever while I'm while I'm working in my office and I need something happy, that's the album I choose to play. Well, that's Chris. Because he wanted the album to be up, upbeat, and uh, up tempo, and all the rest of it. For me, it's it's quite programmed. It's very it's very MIDI orientated with all the sounds and everything. I I hardly play uh, <clears throat> I hardly play on that album. I'm basically singing on it, and there's a little bit of Hammond here and there, but not much. Um. But um, so it's it's not one I, I refer to very often because I think I've kind of gone back more to wanting to play rootsy music. You know, that's where I started out, really. And um, that's where I like to be nowadays. More, more you know, rock and roll, soul music, um, that neck of the woods, rather than the kind of polished, quantized synth thing. But... I had always wanted, at that time, I was quite happy to be in that place because you asked me earlier about the early 80s. Well, and, and I was playing with Nick Lowe and he was very anti anything like synthesizers, hated them, hated anything about that pop scene and was completely swimming against the tide with this kind of rock and roll we were playing. We were playing a lot, we were touring, but we were never getting played on the radio. And I was listening to people like Paul Young, uh, Simply Red, and uh, all these people who had a nice fusion with sort of blue-eyed soul and the and the synth pop sound. And I, I was thinking, I, I, I would, I'd like quite like to have a crack at something like that. And that's when I got the call from Mike Rutherford to get involved with Mike and the Mechanics. And I, you know, that was the beginning of that. And you can hear the synthesizers across that yes. album, especially with Silent Running yeah. and, and other songs. <clears throat> and really the 1980s seem to be defined by the synthesizer. But you bring Definitely. up the Hammond. And, mm -hmm. you know, the most famous Hammond of all is the B3, maybe a B3 yeah. with a Leslie. Uh, so and I've noticed that a lot in your videos uh, or on your stage performances, you still play a Hammond. Which Hammond do you play? Oh, I've got a few. I've got one in the corner there. It's a B3. Um, I, I tour with um, a C3. When I play with Eric, he has his own B3. It, but it's all basically the same organ. The organ has hardly changed since it was invented. No, it's the same deal. It's the same uh, exact structure and everything. It's a fabulous, fabulous instrument. Uh, like I said, I, I'm self-taught. I just learned by listening to records. I, I wish that I had YouTube back then because, you know, it's all on there now. 
And I, but I used to have to listen and try and figure out how is he doing that? And listening to people like Billy Preston and um, Jimmy Smith is pretty hard just to figure it out, you know, without any uh, tuition whatsoever. But uh, that's how I learned to play. And um, it is a fabulous instrument. And um, with, a, with a Hammond, you've got all the colors that you need. Um, you know, we do have synthesizers and all this, that, and the other, but the, the, it's all there on the Hammond, really. Well, and it's an organic, yeah. And, and see, that's what I love. You know, as I'm hearing you, and, and I love people who are self-taught, and uh, because I know with YouTube videos are very helpful for kids or adults trying to learn how to play an instrument, and to get the basics down, I get that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But a lot of times it becomes very mechanical. People like you who learn by listening, trying to figure out. I think that's where a lot of the individual style is born and the emotion is born. I think a lot of today's music lacks actual emotion. This is why I love listening to your recordings and listening to you sing because as we put it in the record business, you know how to sell a song because when you sing it, we can feel the emotion of the words or the story that is being told. Oh. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. But I think, you know, in the recording process now, it, it may be changing, I don't know, but I mean, um, it is quite clinical in a lot of cases, you know, it, it, and you can uh, edit and fix things to the nth degree. Whereas back in the day, when we when we recorded How Long, literally, we were just the, the guys in the room and the red light comes on and you get a bit nervous and you're trying to capture a moment. And I think that maybe that has something to do with why the records of that time and, uh, you know, have endured. And still, yeah, I, I mean, to me, the favorite, my favorite music of all time is, is Motown. Definitely, because that's the great songs, great playing, great performances, energy, uplifting, fantastic. Well, and see, that's what I love. See, I, I love watching music documentaries, um, you know, Sound Studio, Muscle Shoals. And I, I think that for a lot of today's uh, artists who are so caught up in Pro Tools and everything being programmed, that they need to go to a studio that still uses tape and sit there and just produce an album the old style way, the old school way, because there's so much more emotion. If there's a mistake, sometimes that mistake becomes very iconic for that particular song. That's so funny because um, sometimes when we do things uh, from Eric's back catalog, and even the cream stuff or some of the blues kinds of stuff that or that he he loves and often we'll be emulating those mistakes you know and we'll be trying to work out what happens and it'd be so difficult it'd be much easier to just say you know what they meant to do was this but we will try and what were they what was going on there it's, it's so funny yeah I don't know if it's necessary to go all the way back to tape. Although again, with, with Eric, a couple of albums back, we, when he had Glenn Johns produce an album, it was done on 16 track tape. Yeah. 
But I mean, uh, it just takes so long for the thing to wind back. You know, that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I get that. And having to sit there and and cut it at the at the right place and to put all that together, I get it. But yeah. uh, I just love watching or hearing the stories of what they did back in the day before everything became very, very uh, modernized. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this, because, uh, you know, like you were with Mike and the Mechanics, and, yes. you know, everything really seemed to jump when Silent Running came out. Uh, then there seemed to be, what, a break because he had to go back to Genesis? Yeah. And then y'all recorded the song Living Years, mm-hmm. and... Are you surprised that that song resonates with so many people? I mean, I even checked on Spotify. It's been listened to over 111 million times. There's just a, I guess there's a deep story there that we all can relate to. Yeah, no, I I wasn't really uh, surprised. I I thought it would be uh, a big record. I I think it has uh, a powerful um sentiment i mean the, the song's written by ba robertson and mike um i sang it i always wanted to sing that song because in the original mike and the mechanics there were two of us that took the lead vocals myself and a guy called paul young not to be confused with the other paul young this guy was a guy from manchester sadly no longer with us um, passed passed away uh, in 2000. But um, we would often, when initially we were both there as singers, we weren't involved in the writing. And um, Mike would write with the BA and uh, and Chris Neal, and then they would think, now who's going to sing this? And they would often have us kind of uh, audition, if in a way. And Paul, Paul was a great singer. He was also, a, we were very different personalities. He was very outgoing. He was the rock and roll guy. He loved all that. I was a bit more sort of reserved and, um, you know, sincere or whatever you want to call it. But um, I knew when I heard the very first um, uh, take of that song, uh, I need to sing that one. I mean, because... I, as a, I don't want to go dwell on it or go on about it, but I lost my dad when I was 11 years old. And it's definitely a very, very profound um, experience that, you know, affected my whole life, no doubt about it. So I don't want to get, I don't want to sound like Prince Harry here, but um, it's the truth. And um, although the song is definitely not, identical about my relationship with my dad which was great i, lo- I loved the guy he's fantastic i only knew him for 11 years and he had this effect on me my whole life but you know i just felt that i could bring the what need, was needed to the song whereas I, th- I think paul for all all his great singing his great voice and all the rest of it it wasn't the kind of song he would want to get into do you know what do you know what i mean i know exactly what you mean yeah because i lost my father back in 99 so when i listen to the living years i'm like you know there's parts of it that i can completely relate to and i know millions of people relate to that song the exact same way and Mm. what a monster hit that 
became Grammy nominated, but yep. then you got to co-write over my shoulder with Mike. How did you end up finally getting to co-write with him? Um, I don't know. He just opened it up a little more because in the, in the beginning it was really Mike's project. You know, it, it wasn't a band to be honest in, in, in the first instance, it was, it was Mike's project, but he gave it a band name, which was a smart move on his part, I think. And the guys that he got in were guys used to playing in bands, you know, and used to making things work and working as a team. And it, it, it was good because um, it was a good opportunity for us. Mike was in one of the biggest bands in the world, if not the biggest. And, um, but Phil's career had gone ballistic. So Mike, you know, he had a bit of time on his hands, put this project together, wrote some songs, got a couple of singers in. And then that started doing pretty well. Also, I mean, Living Years was a number one record in the States and a lot of places. So um, where was I going with this? Where did we start with this? Well, you co-wrote uh, over my oh, show yeah. with Mike. So I, 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 I think Mike wanted to involve, involve us more. And I just started to get together with him and write, write songs. And that one came about very, very quickly. And became a big hit. Well, I don't know if it was a hit in the States, but it was definitely a hit in Europe and the UK. I mean, I, I performed that one myself. I still performed the living years and over my shoulder in, in, in my own set. And I think that's fair enough. I'm, I'm not, in Mike and the Mechanics anymore, but there is another version uh, of that out now. But I, I think I'm entitled to sing those songs, to be honest. Yes, you are, because you have that, like I said, you have that very unique and distinct voice. And in a way, you're very blessed to have, you know, these very particular songs from different decades to sing that I'm sure some people in the audience go, oh my gosh, he's the one that sings that song, you know, and... To, to bring in new fans and uh, you know, yeah, your voice is, I would have to agree with the BBC documentary. Yeah. The man with the golden <laughs> voice. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, but I want to, I want to kind of talk a little bit with you and Nick Lowe, because you wrote quite a few songs together. One being battlefield, which re, which was recorded by Diana Ross. What was it like yeah. to have a legend like that? put one of your songs on her album. It was amazing. Um, but the, the story of the song really is Nick wrote the song really for, for me, for an album I did called Groove Approved. And um, I can remember now in, in, in calling me up I was in a hotel room uh, in the US and we cut the track and we needed the lyric and he just dictated the lyric over the over the phone and I thought yeah that's that's a good lyric that's a brilliant um but I think at the time I was grumbling a lot of the time I was moaning and whinging because I was singing songs and making people helping people with people's brand and and and, and they were making money from that and and I'm thinking well a lot of it is down to the vocal and maybe phrasing and uh, or changing a little thing here or there that stuck, you know, that becomes a part of the song. And uh, Nick very graciously gave me a piece of that song. 
I felt better about it when Diana Ross recorded it because she was being produced at the time by, um, please edit this bit out because I, 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 there shouldn't be a pause. I should not. Peter Asher. Sorry. That's Sorry, Peter, right. if, you, if you ever watch this. So Peter Asher, uh, and he called up, called me up one day and he said, we love that battle song Battlefield. We're going to record it. But do you think it needs a middle bit? It needs a middle eight. And I, I, I said, I'll, I'll call Nick now. <laughs> and we, uh, we got together and, and I, I think I had a, a hand in the middle eight of the Dino Ross version. Well, there's nothing like but mailbox money. Nothing like it. No. Right. <laughs> well, what shocked me about your your music legacy was that you were actually a co-writer on the Eagles hit Level Keep Us Alive. You co-wrote it with Jim Capaldi and Peter Vale. It wins mm -hmm. an ASCAP award for being the most played song in the US in 1995. So Kind of give us the quick story on how the Eagles got a hold of that song. The quick story. <laughs> Am I waffling on? I think I'm waffling on. No, not at all. Take your time. No <laughs> rush here. Okay. Well, <laughs> so if you remember in the in the mid nineties, the Eagles had kind of split up for whatever reason. I'm not privy to it, but um, I got a call from Don Felder, the guitar player in the Eagles at the time and um he said that he timothy schmidt and possibly joe walsh were looking to work they were frustrated they wanted to work they wanted to do some recording and, and do some shows uh, i didn't know don but i knew timothy i knew timothy b schmidt from the days of how long when we first came to the states yeah he was from, in poco. Band, from poco from and that's when I met Timothy. Anyway, Don called me up and said, do you want to come over and see if we can make anything happen? I went over there with and did some songwriting with them. And on one of these trips, I, I took a song um, written, as you say, I think the title came from Jim. Jim Capaldi had this title. Uh, Peter had the top line and the kind of shape and then we got together and we put the lyric together and the thing and I sang the demo and I took it over to this project that we were doing in in Malibu and everybody loved it and um I was I was as I said I was singing it and Hervé's off was getting excited and interested in this thing happening and coming to fruition. We were recording songs at Don's uh, studio. And okay, I'll cut it a bit brief now. <laughs> because that's, I guess to cut the long story short, the Eagles did get back together. Yeah, because Timothy so, actually called you because they needed another song on the album. And he wanted to use that song. That's right. That's right. That's well, I, I, I mean, I just thought that was the end of, of that. It was a shame. Uh, it would it would have been an, it was a nice thing to do, but I totally understood, obviously. Um, but then I got the call from Timothy saying, uh, "How about you know we need a song for me to sing?" And we were thinking, "Love will keep us alive." Was, Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and now so it's been great. sung at every Eagles concert since then. 
has it really yeah great well don't tell me how many million streams that has had because uh... <laughs> well i want to ask you uh, about your songwriting process i mean is there a particular way you like to go in to tackle a song or just an idea pop in your head no that that i don't know how i do it myself actually which is why i dread when people uh call me up and say oh we're doing this songwriting sem seminar and we want to show the kids how to write songs i say i don't know how it's done you know um it's a different process when you write with other people i guess um but i think some of the better songs i've written personally are the ones i've written myself but i i don't know quite how it happens it it can happen um just by jamming in in here you know and this is my little studio i jam in here and get a little nugget of an idea and then expand it and add some instruments and build it up and put some is that going to harm yeah that'll work my songs are pretty simple well, you have a brand new album about to yeah. debut called uh, Don't Wait Too Long. Uh, yeah. has a very uh, big, ba big band sound, very band. soulful. Um, I believe that it debuts January 20th. 20th. So ladies and gentlemen, yeah. get ready for that. Uh, is there a particular theme behind all the new songs? N not really. It's, um, to be honest, here I go again. Stop me if I've never spoken so much in my life. <laughs> But um, I, I met these guys, uh, a big band, a very good big band, won all kinds of Grammys. They're based in Stuttgart in Germany. And about 10 years ago, they asked me to, um, would I be interested in singing uh, a Christmas album with them, with the usual suspects, you know, in the swing band style. I went over, did it, I loved it. And it, each year since then, I've done bits and pieces, um, concerts, few recordings and it's usually been in that sort of Sinatra neck of the woods. I don't try and do a Frank, but I try and do my version. Um, but we said, well, maybe we should, how would it be to make an album, just rein it in a little bit, the, um, the repertoire, make it a little bit more from my roots and, um, a little bit of Ray Charles, a bit of Bobby Bland, you know, even Etta James and, and go for a kind of a vintage sounding record like that. And it's uh, fantastic. So um, that's how it came about. Well, it's, uh, a, it's, it's a very, you're right. It's a very vintage sound and you've done, you've had albums to where you've done quite a few covers of, yeah. of artists that are in the, you know, the R and B and the soul and the blues. And you mm. just have, it's kind of like on the new album. Uh, you have a you have one of the singles that you released called "Trust in Me," and there's something about I love listening to that song because of the fact that, again, like I said before, you bring out the emotion through your music. We can hear you sell the song. Like I said before, you sell the song. We feel it. It grabs us deeply. We can sing along to it. That's what I, one of the other things I love about a lot of your songs is because to me, what makes a hit song is if the listener or the fan can immediately pick up on it pretty quickly and sing along with it. Mm -hmm. And then it's stuck with them. You know, trust in me is one of those. Songs. I literally can sit here and hear your voice singing it right now. And well, great. 
of course, the original, or the, at least where I know it from, is by Etta James. And let's face it, she absolutely nailed it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 great. But I love it. I love the song, and I, I'm not precious about covering stuff. And oh no, you can't go there. It's you know, I'm doing my version. Um, it's it's not going to be Etta. She she killed it. But um, I love singing good songs. So um, and and like I say, with this album, it is it is a bit different for me with the the big band and. And, and all that and the strings and everything. But um, whether it's stylistically your cup of tea or not, well, it may or may not be. But I, I actually think my vocals on this are as good as anything I've done. You know, I, I honestly think that. Yeah, I, I believe that. And your voice to me, uh, you know, I can go way back to Ace and hear you sing How Long. Then I can see, then I can hear you sing how long today? And then all of your your current songs, your voice has stood the test of time. And a lot of singers can't say that, but you can. Well, it's holding up pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, I mean, I, I take pretty good care of myself. I'm not a monk, <laughs> but I don't drink any hard liquor or anything like that. I like a glass of wine. I don't smoke. I try and stay healthy. And if I stay healthy, it seems to be okay. Um, again, I'm not trained, but I've learned a few tricks from YouTube. Warming up, it's important. All that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't take liberties. I've never been a screamer or a shouter. I w often wish I could. I'd love to have a little Richard scream, you know, but I don't. I'm, I mean, it's always kind of smoothish. So, um, but I, I don't know. I am 71, but um, I like to think that in many ways it's getting better. I'm a bit more economical with the high stuff and the register down low is getting better. But um, singing is a weird one. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse because when it's all there and, it, and it's happening, it's, it's great. It's lovely. I mean, I can go to a lot of places I want to go to, you know, with the phrasing and everything like that but you know it's a struggle because you've got to be healthy you've got to be strong you can't be under the weather but you mind you you can you find ways through and that's all part of the learning process i guess you know how to get out of them corners and all the rest of it but um it's a constant worry when when you're on tour and stuff like that you know probably probably more in this day and age due to what has happened in the last two years and uh, with lockdowns, no touring. Of course, a lot of people have been recording like crazy, trading yeah. Dropbox files back and forth to, to get songs ready for albums when the lockdowns were over. But for you, yeah. what does touring look like in 2023? Busy again. Busy like this year. Uh, last year was very busy. I have my own band. I have um, been working with Eric. You know, I don't, I don't take that for granted. That can he can change his mind at any point. But I'm going to Japan and America with him uh, this year. Um, you know, <clears throat> but going back to you know the lockdown thing, 
in a way, that was the thing I didn't miss at all, was worrying about getting sick. You know, I was at home, I was working in my studio, that kept my mind busy and active. And uh, I thought, well, if I get a cold or if I get sick now, I haven't got to do a show, you know. So. <laughs> well, the, there's always a blessing in disguise there, that's for yeah. sure. And ladies and gentlemen, Paul Carrick, I mean, you, you've heard it from the beginning into the brand new album about to be released. By the time you see this, you, it is out don't wait too long. His <laughs> brand new album, Soulful, Swing, Big Band. You're going to love every song on this album. And again, for me, Trust in Me and the title cut, Don't Wait Too Long, are amazing songs. And for all of you who are fans of Paul Carrick, you need to go, or your, our new fans, go to paulcarrick.net for all of his music, his touring schedule, and you got to get tickets to Eric Clapton's upcoming tour as Paul will be part of the band playing keyboards and that Hammond B3 organ. So, Paul, man, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure today to have you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope I haven't been waffling on too long. One thing I just want to say before we go is that we should, of course, give a mention to Madeline Peru, the songwriter of the song don't wait too long. Um, I don't think we mentioned her uh, uh, earlier, but uh, it's a great song. I'm a big fan and um, I'm glad we remembered to give her a mention. Well, you know what? That that shows how genuine and honest and just a perfect gentleman you are to remember the songwriters of these classic songs. Um, man, it, it's great to know you, Paul. Well, thank you, man. I'm, thanks for getting in touch. I'm I'm honored. I mean, um, like I say, I've concentrated a lot on the UK uh, and and around Europe because I've been doing things independently on a sp and we've built up a nice thing here. It's difficult to make it a, a thing like that happen in the States on, on a small scale, but I just love coming to the States. I always have done. It's the home of rock and roll. And um, I'm glad I can still get there with Eric and what have you. And here I go again. I'm talking. What's going on? <laughs> hey, that's great. I mean, because uh, I know that uh, Eric has a residency in Japan coming up in the spring. And then uh, y'all be touring America. So hopefully I will have, get tickets to that incredible show and, and to see all of you. Great. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Paul Carrick, the man behind the golden voice. You know the songs, How Long, Tempted, The Living Years, but you have to check out all of his solo albums. You're gonna, if you're not a fan now, you're going to be a fan very, very shortly. And don't forget about his brand new album, Don't Wait Too Long. Uh, just a huge collection of songs. You're going to, again, you're going to love it. Big band, swing soulful and you know how we love that soulful type sound here on the ward bond show and again paul many blessings to you and yours in 2023 thank you sir and the same to you all right ladies and gentlemen hey stay tuned we'll be right back with more <laughs> 